love is God. Love is everything. Mm. Love is love is the goddess. Love is consciousness. Love is as is nature. And what an expanded, and I would think more of a mature perspective and more spiritual mature perspective of the understanding of the universal energy that is love itself versus mm. the romanticized ideal that love needs to be just seen through the lens of film and romance. This is Awakened Love, the podcast, and I'm your host, Angel. This is a space where we get real, real about sex, love, and awakening. So strap in, let's go deep. What's up, beautiful awakened beings? This week's episode is with one of my dearest sisters, Josephina Bashout, who is a sacred sexuality healer, teacher, revolutionary. You may know her as the Pussy Priestess. She's been in the healing arts since 2014. She has a master's of arts in spiritual psychology, along with certifications in Reiki, Ipsalu Tantra, Akashic Records readings, and she's also a shamanic healer and sexual artist. She's just an incredibly powerful woman, a wealth of knowledge that I'm so grateful to call a sister and so grateful to have her here on the show today. Thanks so much for being here, Mama. Mm, such a pleasure, Mama. Such a pleasure. Yeah, we had a few false false starts on this one. You know how it goes. Life happens. But I trust that this is like the perfect time and the highest alignment. So I'm just so grateful that we get to have you here and dive into all the juicy, juicy topics mm. that we have in store. <laughs> Thank you. It's great to be back on the show as well. Congratulations on all the progress and growth that you've been making. Thank you, baby. So yeah. for those who are new or maybe if you're on the YouTube channel, we actually have a season one episode with Josefina. So if you want to get her background and get dive into that, you can do that there. And because we've kind of covered that in the first episode, yeah. I wanted to get more of your story, but just from a different lens, more around your story with your sexual awakening, um, relational maybe telling us a bit about your history with love as we're going to get into all that stuff today. Sure. I love that. Love that. Do you, is there a place you'd like me to, to start or begin to kind of kick off the audience from a fresh place? Yeah. Why don't we start from, tell us about your relationship with love. Where Maybe what was your first heartbreak? What did that teach you? How have you progressed to now? I know that you are happily in love, but maybe you tell yes. us a little bit about your story or your history with love and relationship. I love this question. Thanks for kicking that off. That's such a beautiful question, my love. And it has, I have been personally on a really deep dive journey with, with love itself. What I believe now love is, is just love is everything. Love is universal, but for majority of my whole life, I thought love in the ro in the romantic context that it was something that I needed to get, and it was something outside of myself, and it was something that I needed to prove myself of being worthy of. So, from that frame set, and I think growing up watching Disney movies, <laughs> for me <laughs> yep. it was like very romantic, and in that aspect, was Prince Charming would come and save me, and and we would be happily ever after, and I would be, you know, his woman in that regard. So I had that that imprinting from a, a really young age of the very fairy tale princess mentality. And to your question, like I would say I experienced my first heartbreak in fifth grade. I really loved this mm. like boy. I had this affection and like felt like I was falling in love with this boy. 
but the boy didn't like me back. And Mm. I felt so heartbroken that I wanted to be with him and I really liked him and I really cared about him, but he just didn't desire me. And he actually desired my girlfriend instead. And so for me, I would say like, if I was to pinpoint like my first heartbreak, that would be the moment for me. And then Mm. I've had beautiful relationships. I would say that I was, you know, my longest relationship has been six years. And that was with someone who I thought I would marry from high school into college. And Mm. that was heartbreaking because I loved him and he loved me very, very deeply. But we were growing in two totally different directions of life. And it it wouldn't serve me to stay in that relationship dynamic, even though I didn't have the awareness that I had now. So even though I made a decision to end that relationship, it was still gut-wrenching, devastating, heartbreaking to end a relationship with my best friend, who was also my lover and boyfriend and like everything to the point where we're talking about literally having a Disney fairy tale wedding in Florida and like (laughs) looked it up and, and everything like talk about the epitome of like having the, you know, the princess fantasy come true. And it was me choosing to not just step into that story or that fantasy because I knew that there was something else that I was missing. And and I'll get into in a moment, but just to put it there in kind of dog ears, what I knew was missing was the sexual polarity. I didn't have a name for it at the time, but I knew that it was missing that real strong spark of sustainable sexual polarity connection. So I knew that there, the sexual polarity was missing and I just didn't have a name for it at the time. And so it was a very hard decision to end that relationship, but I chose to. And yeah. from that moment forward, I didn't know what I was looking for, but I felt like something was missing. Like I was missing a piece that I was missing a piece of the puzzle when it came to love. Mm. And so my journey with love, I use a phrase um, in my, my coaching and in talks that I do around my journey with love is I say from that moment on, I was looking for love in the bottom of a shot glass Mm. and I was continuously going out partying, drinking, seeking love as if it was something outside of myself that Mm -hmm. I would find in specifically another human and a man that would Mm -hmm. then give it to me. Mm -hmm. And because I was seeking it through partying and, and alcohol and in those ways, I never actually found love until I had a moment which I would consider to be more of a rock bottom moment with myself when I was so out of alignment, so out of integrity with myself that it was like a come to Jesus moment. And in that moment, I awakened to the realization and the understanding that I just don't even feel love. I don't feel a connection to love itself. And therefore, if I'm not feeling that connection, then there must be something going on inside of myself. Mm. And that was where the journey took me into an inward journey and recognizing through deep work that love is inside of me. It's not outside of me. It's not something to be won 
or taught or gained. Mm. And that for me was life changing. It was radically transforming for me to recognize that love really is something that's cultivated inside of me. And through my spiritual practices and all of the work that I've done, I've been awakened to the understanding and my belief is that love is God. Love is everything. Mm. Love is love is the goddess. Love is consciousness. Love is as is nature. And what an expanded and I would think more of a mature perspective and more spiritual mature perspective of the understanding of the universal energy that is love itself versus mm -hmm. the romanticized ideal that love needs to be just seen through the lens of film and romance. Mm, bless. You brought up this idea of the fairy tale ideal. And I think that, um, Anyone who's on my Instagram, you've heard me say a lot, if you want love, you've got to grieve the fairy tale. And uh -huh. I, I wonder what would you say, how would you rewrite your childhood fairy tales if you could write your own, I don't know, just like a brief outline of how a fairy tale would go? You know, the typical fairy tale is damsel in distress usually whether it's sleeping beauty or rapunzel up in a tower or you know there's this there's a damsel in distress and she's somehow rescued by a man and lives happily ever after like how would you rewrite and go as weird as you want to <laughs> go wherever you want to with this question how would you rewrite the fairy tale <laughs> What's interesting was I never liked those fairy tales. The ones that I liked always had a character in mind was the Little Mermaid. If oh, we're going into like yes. specifics where she actually gave her soul oh. to get legs to like self-betray to meet her man on the land. Yes. But what's funny enough about that story is in the end when she became herself, he left his whole world to go under and get her. Yes. And actually in that story, she ended up saving him twice mm -hmm. and brought him to the shore. So what's in what's interesting is how twisted the fairy tales are. So to the question of like, how would I rewrite the story in a fairy tale component would be that's a very good question, right? It's a very good question. Take so when I yeah. when I would look at it, yeah, when I would look at it and feel into that. Hmm. Once upon a time. <laughs> mm -hmm. Once upon a time, there was a a girl who was wild, expressive, and free. <laughs> she played with her toys and dolls and ran wild barefoot in the streets like a little banshee gypsy queen. <laughs> and she ended up finding a beautiful flower. <laughs> and in the flower garden, there was a boy mm. who was nurturing and watering the garden with love mm. because he cared about nature so much. Mm. He picked a rose and gave it to the girl and they smelled it together. <laughs> she asked him and was curious about what he was doing in the garden. And he says that he is gentle and loving and caring. And this is where he feels like he would wanna spend the most amount of time in the garden with the butterflies and the trees. Mm. And he reflects to her that he sees that same beauty in the butterflies in her eyes and the sunflowers in her smile mm. and she reflects to him that she feels the warmth of the sun nourishing her skin mm. and they both looked at each other as a beautiful reflection of purity of power of light that's just what comes yeah, to me in this moment girl. 
<laughs> That's a new fairy tale, honey. What do you think the archetypal ideals are? Just so we can really break it down for people. Like what's the shift that you are highlighting there that perhaps you embodied in your own journey? Yeah, I would say that it's shifting from damsel and it's shifting from being rescued and it's shifting from the male being the hero and the knight. Yes. So there isn't this like knight syndrome, which we know in male psychology, men go through the phases if you follow Alison Armstrong at all, right? There's the, the knight and the prince before he becomes this king. Mm. And in, essentially there is a bit of a hierarchy here. Mm. And so in this story, there is no hierarchy. It is just two souls reflecting light to each other equally mm. and in compliments and reflecting what they feel to one another that just is amplifying and nourishing whatever's existing there. Yes. Can you go into the Alison Armstrong for those listening who perhaps don't know what that is? How do they recognize what is a typical kind of the attributes of the night? And they might recognize that in some men they know or men they've dated, um, the prince and the king. Yeah. With with the knight, I kind of make a joke and I say, you can tell with the knight because the knight is all about Mr. Savaho in that aspect. <laughs> like he's literally looking, and again, I love and I this is not a judgment. It's just making a joke out of it and playing with that. But it's like it's like looking for the wounded bird, mm -hmm. looking for where they can rescue, where they can save, so they gain value. Mm -hmm out of it and they're still joking they're still very playful but they're also in a place of self-exploration and more self-absorption mm. so when a man is in his night phase he's going he doesn't know where he's going yet clearly he's just exploring things but where he's pulled is a direction of where he can feel valuable for stepping in mm. right for for fixing things for solving things for doing things and that stays in the male psyche but there's an essence of the psychology where they're gaining validation from the outside, from the feminine by rescuing them and saving them. And so they feel powerful in that aspect. Where on earth would they have moves... gotten that idea from? <laughs> oh my God, what? Disney movies? No, no way. Would they be the knight in shining armor like Disney says? And we're all enrolled in this, this joke of a, a, rom a terrible romantic comedy gone bad. <laughs> the Leela. Anyways, I interrupted. You were going to be yeah. the prince. That's okay. So we have the, the, the prince. The prince actually has three different stages before he gets to being the king. So there's prince in the stage one, and that stage one is him being able to start to get clear on what his mission is, what his direction is. And in that phase, he can come off as being more narcissistic, more self-involved because he's using all of his resources for himself to, to build himself, to establish himself, to be with them. So that can come off in a variety of ways. If you're dating someone who's more in their early prince stage, you'll notice that they don't have enough time, enough time to hang out with you as much, or they're not as available because they're so giving to what they want to do and what they want to create. So there isn't that emotional availability. Mm. There also isn't an opening or a desire to build or create. So women maybe who are listening or femme identified or anyone who's dating, uh, let's say uh, a male identified, and you notice, okay, this man is like, he's just discovering what he wants to do and he's just building himself and he doesn't have time for me. It's not you, right? It's not us as, as women that he doesn't like us or we're not important enough or we're not valuable enough. It's just, he's a man who's on a mission. And if he's not 
clear on his mission and investing in himself, he's not going to be able to show up as the man that you actually desire in your heart. Mm -hmm. So it's removing ourselves out of the equation and thinking it's personal and just notice it's the evolution of growth of the male psychology in order for their own maturation process. Mm -hmm. So noticing that in like the first stage, the second stage is he's know what he's doing in life. He's building and he's already started to build what he's doing and what he's creating. And again, he's still focused on the amount of time and energy that is managed. But when he's more in, a, in a, an evolutionary state going from, let's say, second to third stage, he's going to be more open to the co-creation of building together or at least open to really committing into a full committed relationship together mm. as long as it feels supportive to his mission. Yep. It feels supportive to his growth and his evolution. So he's very growth oriented, but also focus forward building in that aspect. So again, the, you may notice that there's a little bit more time that he has to give you, but not as much as you want. So the energy could feel really off balance, especially if you are let's say a woman and you've already established yourself in your business and things are flowing and you have more free time, they don't have that luxury in their mind. They're like, go, go, go. I need a bill to get to my king phase and I'm not going to stop. Mm -hmm. And that's where the, the phase two is like real strong momentum. It's like, catch him if you can. He's all over. If it doesn't work, then he's going to move on to the next. And again, it's not a personal thing. It's just noticing the psychology. And then in that third phase, is when he's built more of an established foundation. He still isn't fully settled. He isn't a king. Most men don't get to king till they're close to, to 50, like in the late 40s to 50, right? So if you find yourself dating, dating and this man is actually has a solid foundation or is still building, but there's more spaciousness and he's now valuing the relationship as a top value and quality. And mm. it sounds like this, but like men think of it as like a value add, like if you're adding value to his life and the relationship and he sees the ROI investment, <laughs> right? Really the return re on investment like for those who don't know the return language. on the investment, <laughs> right? The return on the investment of your connection, the return on the investment of him thriving and feeling supported, then He's like, okay, come on in, right? And we can build with, there's a chance to build with him. Mm -hmm. And I love that phase because what I find is when you get to the king, the king has been already established in his patterns, in his thoughts, in his way of being. He's built his empire. And so oftentimes they they could be looking, and this is not, this is not absolute, but oftentimes they would be looking for a queen to kind of come in or a princess to come in that could then step into the queen role that really fits well in their life and the systems that are at play. Mm -hmm. When you grow together more in the third, the secondary to third stage of the prince, there's more of a co-creation and a collaborative aspect. Mm. Men that are more in their king phase are a bit more stubborn and rigid in their ways of being or their rules around living life because they've already set themselves up and they've already established it. Mm. And it runs really well. Mm. So just noticing the psychology and where you know, where they are, if you're a woman out there that that's dating and recognizing that again, it's not about us. It's about their growth and their evolution. So we could find ways to support them by understanding and being compassionate of where they are in their evolution and their journey. And then also being really real with ourselves of like, 
what phase would we really desire? Mm. You know, a lot of us may be like, yeah, I want a prince or I want the knight or I want the king. But when I coach women who are dating men who are kings, you know, who are in their late 40s and their 50s, it's like they're, they're, they can find a lot more conflict because maybe they're in their 20s or their 30s. They're coming from a different mindset. They're exposed to more things. And then someone who's in their 50s, you know, that, that's a gap, 20 years gap. There's lots of experience that has happened, right? So there can also be conflict that could be created with my way is the right way because I've established these things. Mm -hmm. And so there could be a potential power struggle, but not always. Mm -hmm. But I just bring that in the space because there can be pitfalls on both sides, but also really beautiful benefits Mm -hmm. to each of the phases as long as we're true to what feels the most loving and supportive for where we are in our evolution as as women right and that goes into like are we being the temptress right or shadow aspect are we being you know the 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 wounded maiden are we being the princess right Mm -hmm. are we also being you know a queen and from that evolution i would even they said then the empress Mm -hmm. right because there's also that empress energy where it's like i run it i got it it's my way it's my rules i am very rigid Right. And I'm protected. And it's like, come into me and calibrate to me because I'm running all these pieces. There's Mm. less flexibility, Mm -hmm. I would say. Mm. Yeah, I love this. I was having a conversation with a friend recently and he was telling me about a book that I've heard before. I haven't read it. I may get the title wrong, but I think it was The King, The Warrior and The Magician. Have you heard of this? And book? the lover. And the lover. Uh-huh. Yeah, and the yes. lover. And uh-huh. he was saying, like, he was talking about the distinctions between the king. And I feel like you're pointing to that, that you can be in your tyrant, you know, yes. which is more that, like, my way or the highway. And you're running things from that position of, like, centralized power versus the mm-hmm. king as the one who uses his power to serve his people. And it's like a, yes. an energy of generosity and maybe even compersion, getting joy and mm-hmm. nourishment out of supporting and creating nourishment for the people you love, building up your community, helping other people to advance. It's like, I feel like um, at that stage, once you've built your empire, you can either move into that tyrant energy. And this is for men and women, I think, or you can move into that, like become a mentor, like stepping into the role of like preparing for the role of elder. Like, are you passing the knowledge on? Are you using the energy and the resources that you've gathered to support, nourish and uplift the next generation of thinkers, creators, innovators, um, tell us a little bit about, I love to think, I love to think of that also as like, I love the word benevolence, mm. right? Cause I think of like tyrancy or benevolency. Mm. And again, every archetype has a shadow mm. and, and a light expression to it, mm. but that's a really great book as well for, you know, anyone to read, to understand that. And they also have the wounded boy aspect as well. Mm. So, and that goes into the different psychology that men grow into of those particular archetypal signatures that are available. There's also, I was talking to a girlfriend of ours who's also a coach, and there's there's the shadow of the magician, which is also the failed magician. Oh my God, where, say more. <laughs> uh, have, have you heard of this? No, magician? no. So the, the failed magician, he's very interesting, very tricky trickster, this one. Do we know very a few charming. Of them? We may know a few of them, <laughs> but they're not close in the circle anymore. I would say as close to, to the heart and close to, to the, to, to, yeah, as close to the heart mm. anymore. But I would say that the failed magician, I dated a failed magician. Oh, that's how I, that's how close it is that I understand. Mm. And what I recognize is they have an ability to manifest. Mm. However, they fail in their manifestation 
manifesting abilities that is self-sourced from inside. So instead, they use other powerful beings around them to manifest and enroll them in getting their desires manifested. <sighs> Sounds like a cult leader. So it sounds like a cult leader, <laughs> could be, but they use their charm to influence mm. and to invoke other people almost as a spell, mm. right? Almost as a spell to then you fall into their spell of charm and affluence, mm. and then you start doing a bunch of things for them. But that's not, in my perspective, the true archetype of the magician, which is able to transmute alchemize wield and command power in yes. that space and that's hence why it's the failed magician because they haven't owned their power mm. of magic of manifestation whatever you want to call it from the light perspective yeah i think it's that that Thing where you can meet a being man or woman who has a lot of spiritual power but not a lot of self-awareness like spiritual and energetic yes. power does not equal um energetic awareness which i think comes from spiritual discipline and yes. we all have yes. moments of not being aware and i think that we're living in an age where we've swung really hard out of like puritanical purifying silence stillness which is beautiful and important but we've swung hard into reclamation of ecstasy as a purifying force and ecstatic practices and i think what i'm starting to see is that there's a lack of like this balance from the spiritual mm. power and yes. wanting like really expanded experiences or like going hard in the medicine space and finding like okay there is spiritual power in the and spiritual a lot of energy in these practices and even sometimes these teachers and also perhaps the less quote-unquote sexy stuff silence stillness cultivating that like yeah. spiritual discipline that allows someone to have the self-awareness wrapping around that spiritual power i'm listening to ram das's autobiography at the moment it's sensational cannot recommend enough mm. and i just finished a chapter where he was talking exactly about this meeting a woman who was quite mesmerized by her so it's funny it was like the archetype in a female um she, she was kind of the the magician and she was perhaps more in the failed magician energy. He talks about how she um, is very powerful, very clearly tapped in, um, could communicate with auric beings, but really lacked self-awareness, really abused that mm. power, used that power to manipulate kind of exactly what you're saying. And yeah, sadly, yeah. I don't think it's that uncommon. I mean, I'm loving this track of the archetypes. You mentioned the queen. Can you go into from your perspective what the light and the shadow are of the queen archetype? Yeah, I'm happy to go in, into that aspect. So for, for for me and the way that I've worked it with synthesizing the information with the queen energy and the, the queen archetype, again, there can, like we talked about, there can be a benevolency, right? Or there can be a, an absolute tyrancy or, you know, what I can even say, like the raging bitch. Like it's like literally <laughs> the same thing. My way or way, get out, like off with their head. Like think about- Oh, yes. Around, right? Where it's like Let off with cake. their head, off with their, exactly. Mm -hmm. Right? And there, there's both of those because there's, a lot of power. So mm -hmm. with the with the queen energy, what I find is being able to wield that amount of power requires that self discipline and that level of mastery, which you can't fake mm -hmm. and is developed over time, regardless of your age, looking at the feminine psychology, the only way that I see right, nothing's an absolute, but from my perspective, the only way that I see that we can evolve to this is by going through the fire time and time and time again, dissolving our ego and our identity and continuously rebuilding ourselves over and over and over. And I find that the queen archetype is able to master both non-attachment as well as pride and mm. honor in herself, in her creation, 
in the way that she also commands a space, whether mm-hmm. it's, you know, her queendom, whether that's her community, whether it's her, her business, her relationship, but she's there to, to serve. And she's also looking out for the totality of the whole. Mm-hmm. And again, that could be in a place where it's her set vision. And if you don't fit in the hole off of their heads mm-hmm. or a selfless way, right. Of looking at the whole and seeing where can I, where can I give, where can I serve, where can I support, where can I, where can I connect? And mm-hmm. there's a beautiful quote from Marianne Williamson from her, from her, her book about a woman's worth. And I love what she says because it's an evolution of consciousness it's consciously bringing the self-awareness and not losing presence with all of your words, all of your actions, with your behaviors, mm-hmm. with your ritual. And the quote that she says is she asks the question and she says, what is the difference between a servant girl and a queen? The only difference is the belief and the consciousness. Yeah. And I believe that that really eloquently highlights the, the evolution of the feminine consciousness from going from a place of neediness or needing to prove self or validation outside or being rescued in that younger archetype or the to over-serving right the shadow over of the serving. mother yes correct which could be could be more in the mother i would say than the queen the queen i find is more aware in fact she could be more stingy mm. i'll use that term that's what comes <laughs> to me more stingy mm-hmm. more like i'm gonna give less actually mm-hmm. right and and not be as generous mm-hmm. Right. Or she can be very, very generous. Another uh, interesting aspect with the queen. And I and I look at the piece of accessibility. There's also I find in a shadow is like there can be the superiority. I'm above. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm above. So therefore, mm-hmm. you don't really get access to me. I'm not available to you. And there could be a potential of a judgment of judging others lower than or less than in that shadow where, again, the invitation of the light is to actually invoke the queen and other women and other psyches that have forgotten that they have that power and that ability. Yes, yes, I love this track so much. So how would you (laughs) say for women listening who are like, hell yeah, I want to step into my queen and particularly I want to, because I think, you and I actually discussed this last time you're on the podcast, this idea of not wanting to be quote unquote too big and um, worried about hurting other women with our light. And our, and we kind of really went extensively into that. Let's yeah. talk about level two of the video game, the next step, which you've just <laughs> brought up, which is invoking the queen and other women. What does that look mm-hmm. like for you maybe? Yeah, invoking the queen and in, in other women for me is something that I find to be really joyful and ecstatic inside of my body when I'm in that experience. Mm. And I find in that, that for me, it's the word that comes to me is like a duty and responsibility to serving the feminine. Mm. That's, that's how I see it is like a duty and responsibility to serving women and Mm. to see other women rise and shine in their power. And there's, it's nuanced because you can be very strong. And I say like in social media, there's always like, you know, big queen energy, big empress energy, (laughs) big this energy, right? Even big pussy energy, like real big big energy. Mm -hmm. But when there is a woman who has had a challenging past or experience or is stuck in a place of self doubt and has been looping and cycling, coming and having that approach that's very grandiose Mm. again it doesn't mean that we need to dim our light it just means can we step into a higher level of our own mastery and actually attune ourselves more the nuances of what would be the most supportive 
to bring an in to her, mm -hmm. to help her just connect a little bit deeper to her power and be a very clear reflection of what's possible for her and her potential. Mm. And that for me is invoking that and reflecting back her leadership abilities. Because again, the queen leads herself, her leadership abilities, her ability to, to execute, her ability to um, support others, to go after her desires and dream. And, and again, her trustability in herself and life itself as well. Mm. And her ability to choose love over fear, to mm. rule from a place of love, mm. which is in you know the deep place of her heart, her womb, her sex. Mm. So that's what I would say in regards of invoking. And so the ways that I love to do that is in a cheeky, flirty, playful way, mm -hmm. because women love to play and I love <laughs> yes. to invoke through, through play, mm -hmm. through, through dance, through conversation. And mm -hmm. sometimes it can be triggering for other, for other women. And I've even had clients been, you know, a recent client even told me, she's like, just sitting across from you, I'm triggered. You're not doing anything. You're just simply being there, sitting in confidence, open, and you're radiating unconditional love and kindness nonstop. And to me, I don't know how you do it. It's triggering to me because I can't access that. Mm. Right. So you just being here, I'm feeling like I want to leave. I want to escape or I want to like attack you off across the table. Mm. I'm like, beautiful. Mm -hmm. Can I still hold that benevolent, graceful, you know, and for me, I relate it to the divine feminine, the divine queen energy. And, and create that that container and that space for her to trust the energy. Yeah, I think that's such a beautiful uh, example because I find what happens when a woman expresses something like that takes a lot of courage for her to express that to you. And you've obviously as a coach um, already provided enough safety that she trusts you in the space enough that she can even share something that a lot yeah. of people would be too afraid to say out loud, which is really beautiful. And then I think what I notice in those moments with my own clients where they have the courage to say something that they would normally, we've been taught or programmed, you know, you don't say that to someone and they, they trust you enough to just tell you what they're really feeling yeah. and you just meet them with acceptance and non-judgment. It's like something in their nervous system goes, whoa, like, wow, I can say the thing that I think will get me rejected or abandoned or pushed out of the tribe. My whole nervous system's like, don't right. do that, you'll die. And you do it and everyone, and you have a presence just saying, okay, tell me more about that. Let's go into that. Yeah. And they're like, wait, er? <laughs> yeah. And they're like, this doesn't compute right now. What is happening? <laughs> you touched on in your heartbreak story um, that the, the pain of rejection. And I kind of want to pivot a little here and we're, we're, we're touching on it slightly, yeah. but I think it's such it. a painful experience, you know, like rejection sucks. It just does. I've experienced it. It fucking sucks. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's yeah. also a part of life. Um, yeah. And so I'm curious for anyone listening, you know, that may have that roar on their heart or in their space or someone they love and want to support. Yeah. How, how would you suggest someone go about healing or dealing or integrating rejection? Mm, great question. So one of the keys that really unlocked my healing in this particular area is worthiness and self-acceptance. Mm. Because what I find to be the truth in my reality is that we're experiencing 
through a filter of unworthiness or undeservingness or not enoughness, their choice, and we're making it about us, and then we're creating a story through the lens that we're being rejected. Mm. It fucking hurts <laughs> no matter what, right? No matter No matter what. But if we're attached to a story and the sensation, and mm -hmm. now we are making it about us mm -hmm. and fueling our ego that we're rejected. Mm -hmm. Notice, right, for anyone who's listening, what are the stories that you're stuck in a loop over and over that we're making about ourselves, right? So for me, right, in the past, in my younger years, my teens and my 20s, the story when I was like, oh, they don't, you know, they don't like me. They don't, I'm not worthy enough, or I'm not good enough, or I'm not pretty enough, right? Or they're choosing this over me, right? Mm -hmm. So again, an either or aspect, which all of that was me, right? For those that are listening, rejecting myself through the narrative and the stories that I was telling myself. And I was identifying with these stories as truth. Mm, say it, sister. So if you're listening to this and you're dealing with rejection or in dating and love, or you're, you're helping someone who's dealing with this, and this can also be in career and work, right? You yeah. go for something, maybe you don't land that client or you don't get that job. And we take it personally, we internalize it. And then we're creating a belief system that it has something to do with our, our in, inherent worthiness and we're attaching it to our identity. This means that I am this, mm. but that's actually bullshit. It's not mm. actually real. Mm. It's just through the wounded lens and filter. Mm. So being able to do that forgiveness work, that compassionate self-forgiveness work brings the power back and cleanses our lens of perception to understand that we're just misinterpreting their choice mm. and we're misinterpreting it through a wounded lens. And yes, we still have the experience We're we're human. Like you said, rejection is a part of life, but we can develop rejection resiliency mm -hmm. by not going into that story every single time and come back faster and faster like we do in every aspect. It's like, cool, there are no move on. Thank you for taking care of yourself. Mm. Thank you for at least telling me. And mm. I like to think about rejection is like, the sooner you know, the better you can move on. Yes. Right? Move on <laughs> so much quicker. Yes. Don't even get caught in the mud and that story. Right? I would rather you were you create the experience, right? And here's the nuance. Create the experience of me experiencing what that feels like sensationally to have rejection inside of my body. So that when that experience comes again, I know what it's like. I know that it's not about me mm -hmm. and I can heal that by changing the narratives and not attaching my core soul self identity to the story. Mm. And I would rather know sooner than later, instead of wondering and being dragged on and going in the story in the muck for so long, mm. it's like, great. You're a no. Great. Move on. You're mm -hmm. a no. You're a no. You're a no. Great. Someone's going to be a yes, mm -hmm. but they may not be a yes if you're still in that story of self-doubt, of self-abandonment, and ultimately self-rejection because mm. we're the ones rejecting ourselves. Mm. Say it, sister. Yeah, I think we're touching on something so important and deep. And so I want to keep pulling this thread. Why do you think it's so hard for human beings to hear the word no? Mm. Well, we're told no a lot as a child anyway, <laughs> right? We're always told, no, you can't do that. No, you can't touch that. No, no, no. And so when we're hearing no, there's then like, why, right? There can be this, this instinctual place of, but I want, 
but I want to get, but I want to, but I want to conquer. I want to win. I want a victory. Right. So that can even go into, again, our, our old brain, the reptilian brain of survival, like, but I need this thing. Mm. So, right. It, it hits a very, a very old part of us. Right. And when we hear no, I also believe that we are not taught now we're very blessed, but we're not taught. And if, again, if you find a teacher like yourself or like myself or all these amazing teachers that talk about self-love and self-acceptance, we're not taught the emotional tools to handle our own inner tyrancy or stories of torment when we get a no, because we believe, right, collectively, that it has something to do with, with us. And then we want to fix it. We want to get it. We want safety. We, we're, we're reaching for these pieces. But if we're taught that no is actually not negative, mm-hmm. mm. right? No is not negative. Mm. No can create an amazing opportunity and a cosmic redirect, mm-hmm. a course correct in a way that's like an absolute full body fuck yes. Mm. But we don't know that because mm-hmm. we want to win. We want to conquer. We want, we're stuck on the no as a barrier as a limitation mm-hmm. versus no being something that's really empowering. So I love the idea and I tell my practice, my clients to practice their sacred no. Practice saying no in a healthy, empowering, excited way, the same way you would a yes. Yes. Yeah, I've actually guided a pleasure practice where women say yes over and over, then they say no and they're stimulating mm. their bodies and feeling arousal with yes. And with no. And yeah, I think you bring up what one of the points you brought up that I think is so important that it bears repeating is this idea of there's the sensation and then there's the story and how we get like I loved the phrase you use getting stuck in the mud of like if we ruminate on the story and I think we're such meaning making machines that it's like Mm -hmm. what are we making that person's no, as you so beautifully pointed out, mean about who we are versus just feeling the sting as energy and sensation in the body and then it passes. And I don't know if you've seen that meme or that um, thing going around on social media, but I really loved it. One of them was rejection is just redirection. Mm. And the other one was rejection is God's protection. Ooh, I love that one. Rejection is God's protection. That's a really good one. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's it's such a sticky, tricky thing, but like, as you so beautifully pointed out, Um, I think we can actually learn to love our sacred no. And I think actually when we do that work that you're so beautifully sharing with the world that I'm sharing with the world in our own way, this idea of women reclaiming their no and feeling safe and sexy in their no, perhaps we feel more comfortable with other people's no. If we aren't comfortable with our own no, um, I think it's pretty hard to get comfortable hearing someone else's no. Um, Yeah, I would agree with that. I would absolutely agree agree with that because it's again how we're experiencing it inside of our body in our in our physiology in the sensations if we're uncomfortable we're contracted even saying it right and I talk about this even with consent right if we talk mm. about you know being in different places you know whether it's a play party whether it's even a ceremonial space whether it's just even an event where people are trying to open themselves up or are willing to open themselves up to intimacy. That's nothing to even do with sexual, but just sensually and more intimately connecting. It's very important to understand the power and the pleasure that comes with consent and Mm. consent needs to be a very clear, full, excited. Yes. Mm -hmm. And if it's not, then it's a no. Yes. And learning how to receive that. No, especially in a very vulnerable place of intimacy 
is the practice and the discipline in itself. And that's why I love the phrase of thank you for taking care of yourself mm-hmm. because it's not about the story. Even if I'm still telling myself a story, I'm going to practice saying that so I get out of the story and then be with myself. And if I need to tell myself it's not about me, it's about them, right? They're honoring themselves. Like that is a practice, changing the inner dialogue, changing the inner narrative to one that is loving, empowering, and supportive Mm. of the type of relationship and the type of life experience that you're desiring to have. So you've got to create it from the inside out. Mm. We cannot expect people to to do it for us. Mm, My gosh, you mentioned something and I want to kind of weave it into my next question because we haven't actually talked about this on the podcast yet at all. Um, My next question was, what's the difference between sexuality and sacred sexuality? But I'm going to adjust it a bit because you just dropped in there play party. Just a little, just like a little drop, just like a little drop in there. (laughs) Dropped in play party. And I think a lot of people listening actually might have no idea what a play party is. And so rather than asking the question I was going to ask, which is what's the difference between sexuality and sacred sexuality, I will shift that to what is a play party? And from your perspective, what's the difference between a sacred container of sexuality in a play party setting and a regular play party? Mm, Okay. I love, this is a great question. (laughs) So the, for me, when I'll just break down the word, what you're mentioning is sacred. Mm -hmm. We can make anything sacred. We can make having a cup of coffee or water sacred by having the intention of really honoring, holding consciousness and bringing bringing loving awareness to it, transforms it from the mundane to the majestic. Mm. So we can really bring that quality of sacredness of, of the divine to any experience, right? So that's consciousness, that's awareness, that's that's love. Now, when we look at like what a play party is, and I'll just talk about what a play party is, a play party is where you get a chance to play. Now, let me preface by saying a play party is not an orgy, it's not an orgy, <laughs> right? An orgy is something totally separate than a play party. There can be sex that goes on at a play party, but the intention is very different. An orgy, for those that are listening to for education, an orgy is a very just open, clear space where Everyone knows that everyone who's coming here is open to and ready and and for the most part willing, you still have consent, is there to have sex. And usually in an orgy, everyone just comes, you kind of exchange, and it's more about the, the, the bodily connection of sex, of the act of sex, whether that's penetrative sex or non-penetrative sex, it's still there to go into a sexual experience and exchange which could be mindless, which could be about the body. There could be no intentionality, no care about it, Mm -hmm. right? And not even an emotional connection or an intellectual connection. It could be purely about the actual act of fucking. Can I say that on the show? Oh, girl, yes. (laughs) Have we we met? (laughs) (laughs) Purely for the act of fucking. Go on, we're talking about orgies. Just take it there. Purely for the act of that. So that's what can go on an orgy. Now, a play party is, let's pull it back a bit more to the innocence and joy of playing. Mm -hmm. When we play, there's curiosity. When we play, there's an exploratory factor that's there. And having the intention to go to a play party will be a group of people. Usually, it's filtered in the sense that people are usually hand chosen to come to these types of, of, of events. And there usually could be you know, in someone's home or a really beautiful space or, or anything like that. And there's an intention for to come and play and play with your edges. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. So playing with an edge, an edge would be right for an example, an edge could be maybe for the first time sitting and maybe kissing my partner and maybe letting people see us kiss publicly for those that public display of affection is an edge, right? We look at really just basic, simple edges, right? Mm-hmm. And that still is an edge. So that could be an edge. You play with the idea and the energy and your own internal sensation of, ooh, this is a little bit edgy to be watched kissing someone outside of my bedroom. Mm -hmm. So a play party would give you that experience. A play party could also be where you're playing with touch and and sensations and and, um, different types of toys, right? And, And feathers, you can be playing in the sense of playing with conversation or energy with other couples or singles, right? So the intention is not to go and just have sex, you know, penetrative sex or not. It's not that. It's to play with your own edges and the edges of your your partner or play with the edges of others in a in a safe space. For the mm-hmm. most part, it's usually for the most part, it's usually created as a safe space. Mm-hmm. And what I would point out, because maybe this isn't obvious, but and I would be interested to see if you agree. Usually if you're exploring that edge, you're also in a room where other people are exploring their edges and their edges might yes. be really different to your edge. <laughs> correct. And, correct. And that's where the curiosity comes into yeah. place, right? And the communication <laughs> and the consent because mm-hmm. your edge may be different. Like my edge is not being seen, you know, kissing someone in a room. I have no problem with that, right? And and uh, well, no problem with that. Sure, like, Sophia, I am shocked. No, I I like to be watched having sex. Like that that's an edge that I moved past, right? But that one edge. I've got new edges now. Can I share? Can I share? Melted into that edge. Right? Melted into that one. Now we're going into another edge, right? And edge, I mean, everyone edge, listening edge. wants to know what the new edge is. Just say it. Uh-huh. By well, everyone, I mean you know, like me. A, you exactly. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. But I'm sure, like you and me, we could both agree. Like when we went into, let's say, a self pleasure practice in a room full of people. Oh yeah. Like to do a sex magic practice. Oh my gosh. That's an edge being oh, naked yeah. and masturbating in a room with people all about our desires. Yeah. That's that was... edgy. <laughs> the first time I, I did that, I was like, okay, I know that I want to do it, but I'm also like, there's a part of me that's like this, you're, are we just like low key just masturbating together? I'm kind of down <laughs> to do that. But like, and then I didn't realize when I actually had the experience, A, how spiritually profound it was for me, how healing, but also how natural. I was like, wow, I thought this would be kind of weird and very edgy. And it was, yeah. but when I got there and I dropped into it, for me, my experience was this feels supernatural and like a soul remembering that actually as women, we've been doing this for thousands of years. Yeah. Mm, mm-hmm. Beautiful. And I want to speak to that thread that you just pulled up. And I, I feel like, again, the differentiation point in there, which is nuance, is bringing in the sacred aspect. So when it's mm. more of a sacred play party, or for example, when we were doing our sex magic practice, right, in a room full of women, there's intentionality behind it. So there's a container that is set. And so when we're entering into, let's say, a sacred play party, there's a ceremonial element There Mm. are agreements that we all are agreeing to. And usually the ceremonial element begins with adding some meditation in, right? Some more of of a a grounding element of of consent, a conversation around desires, a conversation Mm -hmm. around parts where we're feeling really uncomfortable. So we're Mm -hmm. holding each other in that space of sacred, not judging. And that container then 
is created as a little bliss vortex for us to collectively transmute mm -hmm. whatever is in this space, whether it's shame, whether it's guilt, whether it's fear, right? Whether it's judgment mm -hmm. of self or others in that yes. sacred container, we choose to enter into it for the, the healing, the empowerment, the restoration of the erotic innocence for all that are in that space. Yes. It's that healing. So well said. And I think, and, you know, I would say, and I know you feel the same, so I'll just highlight it while I'm assuming, <laughs> but I think I can assume that, you know, neither is, we're not saying either is better or worse. Like no, you can go yeah. to a play party just to play and that's what you're interested in. And there's consent and there's a container and it's really just playful and about exploring like fucking beautiful. Yeah. Or if you're more interested in like me personally, I'm more interested in exploring my edges energetically, exploring yeah. energy with people and specific, more specifically women. I feel, mm -hmm. um, you know, very content with my partner. But one of the healing things that actually happened for me at a play party was super simple. And I'll share it because it might be surprising is um, I am not open to having experiences with other men. Mm -hmm. but I do explore with women. Um, that's just part of my relationship agreements. And it's also just own part of my desire. That's just where yeah. I'm at right now. Um, and I was at a play party and I had a, a man say, a friend, can I touch your feet? Cause they know that I'm not available to be touched in any other way. I said, yeah, yeah actually you can. And I had like a few male friends massaging my feet, like quite, like I'd say, I think three or four men massaging my feet. It was a really nice experience. I've got to tell you. But the reason I bring mm -hmm. it up is because I've always been really self-conscious about my feet. I've mm. always thought, oh my God, they're so ugly. They're so big. I would, when I was younger, I would try to hide them, especially if I was on dates or first knowing a guy. Yeah. Um, and now I've totally moved past that. I love my feet. Damn, I have great balance because I have what one of my girlfriends <laughs> calls trophy toes. <laughs> I they're love my, that. They're my trophy, trophy toes, honey. Toes. Yeah. <laughs> See me balance. Got exceptional uh -huh. balance. Um, and so for me, it was so funny. That wasn't the experience that I expected to have, but that has been one of the most healing experiences, having men that I trust touch and worship my feet and telling me, oh my gosh, your feet are so soft. Like just yeah. loving my feet and really worshiping them. I was like, wow that actually healed something inside of me, which might sound silly to those listening, but I wanna share that because these healing containers uh, where the play party is, has this sacred intention might not be what you think, and you might not have the healing experience you think you're gonna have. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I love that because again, it's just exploring an edge. So when you go in with the curiosity mm -hmm. and you're allowing yourself to be in the exploration, that's mm -hmm. what's really beautiful about this type of work. and. That's where I find is the differentiation between sacred sexuality and to your question and just exploring sex, because yeah. it's not about just the positions or getting an orgasm or penetrating or getting the money shot or the cum shot or whatever it is. This <laughs> is actually about exploring the nuances of our own body and our edges mm -hmm. of where we're still holding shame about our body parts, whether it's toes, <sighs> whether it's mm -hmm. breast, whether it's whether it's an Audi belly button, right? Or mm. inverted nipples, or whether yeah. for men, if they're circumcised or non-circumcised, whether it's the shape, like there's a so wide variety. And I love that our yeah. bodies are these amazing tapestries for healing and these amazing mm. tapestries of, of art where we could learn different ways that we can play ourselves in a tune, but then also be curious and explore what are other ways that our partners 
can explore us instead of feeling like I already know what I like in sexual mm -hmm. and I'm always in my command and I'm like, do it this way or do it this way. Don't get me wrong. I still communicate what I like and when I want <laughs> it, but then I practice the receivership of dropping, right? There's a beautiful dance mm -hmm. between commanding and then receiving like there's both mm. and and you know he does the same right your partner can do the same mm. so there's still a really beautiful exploration in that but being still open to what you don't know like i discovered yes. this year that i can have orgasms from my belly button i had no idea yes. that my belly button is so so lit and so okay. orgasmic did you discover this too well, I've had this thing since I was a little girl, but now you just gave me some codes, sister, because I'm like, oh my God, I have a thing and everyone listening just try it out where if you touch like really deep inside your belly button, it gives me a little shock directly in my clitoris yes! and it's kind of intense. So I actually am like, whoa, I never thought about it, but I could probably stroke that to orgasm. So thank yes. you, Josephina, because maybe You're I can have welcome. orgasm through my belly button. You're welcome. You're welcome. Now try putting a tongue in your belly button. <gasps> oh, so is that what did it for you? It's the tongue? It was the combination of 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 tongue, of yep. heat and stroke. And it was oh. like in belly button and just below the belly button, right where the Dantian oh. is. So yes. this like upward, downward stroke completely <laughs> caught me off guard. And now right, guys like, gotta oh. go. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, exactly. Uh, the podcast is over. <laughs> Everybody go and touch your belly button. Uh -huh. Um and that it's just to the amazing. point of what we're saying here is like, again, we're not trying to say that one or another is right or wrong, right? Even mm. get that out of your thinking, like get rid mm. of the foolish thinking. It's a matter of try it all out so you can yeah. be clear in what's your turn on, what makes you wet, what gets you turned yes. on, what gets you excited and be honest with yourself. This as conversation. You <laughs> yeah, this conversation has me really turned on. <laughs> and moving out of like performative <laughs> sex or also fearful sex, you know, mm. it can really be such a beautiful exploration. And there's a place for all of it. There's a place to be playful and bring out the sphinx and the, the things and just be mm. little frolicky fairies and little nymphs. And there's a place for slow, deep, energetic lovemaking where you're barely moving and there's eye gaze and there's forehead kissing. And, you know, you're, mm. you're really being in this, this otherworldly place where you get to mm. ride the waves of bliss. So that's yeah. where I say, be really curious about the potential and the spectrum that you can experience through this gorgeous vessel and vehicle that is, you know, your body. Mm, yes. And there is, I love what you said about how these spaces can be so healing for where we still hold shame around yes. our turn on our bodies. Cause I had this conversation with Patrick just the other day where, you know, you know, our crew, we're pretty nude people. We love to be nude on the beach yeah. and it's not a sexual thing. Like it's, it's no. sometimes there are containers where things are sexual and other times and sometimes they're, they're, not. they're yeah. not at all. And that has actually been super healing for me to show up in a community where I could be stark naked and no one's objectifying me, trying to have yeah. sex with me, thinking that it means anything. But the other thing that was really powerful is actually for me seeing many different types of breasts because I was also yeah. really self-conscious about my nipples and my breasts. Like I would not really seen um, I'd only ever seen like perfect in what I, what does that mean? But like this idea of right. that I'd been taught and socialized to believe like that's what a breast looks like, mainly fake breasts, like yeah. 
tiny nipples. And I was like, oh, damn, like mine don't look like that. And actually being around women topless, playing Mm -hmm. cards and being silly as we do, I'm like, I've never met a pair of boobs I don't like. They're all fucking gorgeous (laughs) and they're all different. And actually Mm -hmm. just being exposed to a broader spectrum of that um, has really helped. I think that that can be really helpful, you know, for women seeing different vulvas and it might not be sexual. It's just, I think we've lost that not being nude in community. Yeah, I would say, in fact, actually approach it from a non-sexual perspective first is where the healing comes from. Like that was so so healing for for me is 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 that and I agree, like I used to be so self-conscious about my own breast as well. I mean, I used to stuff my bra as a girl because I didn't have big boobs like girls did. And I was very judgmental about it. And being in community where and it was actually was friends of ours that we know mutually friends and my first burn where I, it was an edge to go to Brahmer's camp and shower naked. I was like, yeah. oh my God, I'm showering naked in public, in a plexiglass. <laughs> that was already an edge. And mm-hmm. then to go in a shower and have a male friend of mine who's in a relationship, turn around and start washing my back naked. <gasps> I freaked out. And then I looked at her and I looked at him and they're like, this is okay. Right. So the idea that it's okay to be naked without it being sexual or Mm, that it needs to lead to a sexual experience is so healing. Even in a relationship, being naked doesn't mean that we're going to just have sex. There's so much healing in the joy and the innocence of just being naked together without the expectation that now it means we have to have sex. And same thing for being with, you know, girls and women. It's like yeah. being around each other nude and naked in women's groups or temescal ceremonies. It's yeah. like it gives us a moment to really look at all the different shapes and sizes of body types. And I know that living here in, in L.A. for a while, up until I went to Europe and spent like a whole summer in Europe, I had in my mind that some like I was bigger in a way, even though I'm not at all, but I was bigger in a way based on all of the fitness that's going on here in LA and all of the people that are like really tight and small or ripped or super toned Mm. and not seeing a variety of bodies, but you go to Europe and I went Mm. to the nude beaches in Spain and Ibiza and nobody cares, all shapes, all sizes. And so to be naked on a beach with guy friends who'd also never been naked publicly was so healing and like silly and and playful and again as you're speaking as you're listening edges don't have to be a crazy thing just even being naked in front of someone is is a big edge especially when there's many people that don't like to even have sex in the daylight or with lights on Mm. like really breaking it down to that level of 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 shame and, and avoidance where, you know, we're having sex at night in the dark, avoiding in the closet. It's like, Mm -hmm. I invite us all to really bring light into this space and that you can just do with intentionality Mm -hmm. and that turns it into a sacred practice. Yes, babe. Oh, so lit up by this conversation, like restoring that erotic innocence and doing it in community. I imagine people listening might feel like, a, where would I even find a play party if I wanted to do that? Or where would I find community that I could explore being just naked that's not sexual and just like playing together? Um, what would your suggestion be for people that are really yearning for this conscious community to grow together? Mm, I would say, I mean, there's a there's a bunch of different like websites and things that you could probably go on and find. I don't do that myself 
personally. And mm. I just am going to share what I what I would personally do and what I have personally done, which is proven to have really great results, <laughs> is the first step is start telling people about your desire. Yeah. Because you'll be surprised at how many other people around you are either sharing the same desire or know about other things going on, but don't talk about it mm -hmm. because it's considered taboo. And that's how I discovered it. The first time I went to, a, um, you know, a sex club, we Googled it. My boyfriend <laughs> at the time took me and it was just like, oh my God, it was not the vibe. I did get to go through an edge. So I had that I experience. Get to go through an edge. <laughs> had that experience. I was witness having sex in public. That was, that was great. But that wouldn't be, you know, the arena that I would necessarily go. Again, you could try it. Mm -hmm. But I would say start to ask, you know, ask people around you and start to do some research because there are a lot of different play communities that are in all types of cities in, in everywhere. If you start to search and look for play communities and start to just voice, I'm having a desire to do this. Do you know of anything? Have you ever hear of anything? Like, let me know. See what starts to come in, you know, or organically. Mm -hmm. There's also um, a website that has a company that's out of Berlin that comes to LA and I think they travel all around. That's called, I might be wrong, but you could probably find it. And this one I would say is actually a good one. I think it's called the Kinky Bunny Club. I think I've and heard of there's, it. Yeah, and that one I've been to two of their, their parties, which are a combination of play and sex. Mm -hmm. So there's a little bit of intention, but it's not the same. Mm -hmm. Majority of the ones that I've been to are all personally done either through myself or through community that then I just talk about the desire. And then mm -hmm. it's like, Oh, here's something that's going on and going along. So I would say, ask, you know, ask voice and, and share that you're actually open to that mm -hmm. and see how that comes on in. How did you find your first one? Friends? Yeah, I think friends I've had I've we've had um, people circling and trying to invite us for years. It took <laughs> it took a while yeah. for me to feel you know, I had to go through a few edges. And even still, like I'm not um, I've had my experiences and I recognize where I'm at now and there's no right or wrong. And also this could change as I'm actually more experienced, yeah. more interested in having deeper experiences with less humans that I can form mm -hmm. an emotional connection with, connection with develop yeah. a relationship with. I'm exploring at the moment with um, a woman and it's been very, very slow and we have a deep friendship and a deep connection and that's exciting to me. And a lot of it is energetic. Mm -hmm. And so that's mm -hmm. where I'm at. But I, I think, yeah, when you're, um, when you put yourself into communities that are involved in healing, particularly sexual healing, I think yes. a like proceed with caution because we are very blessed. You and I, you know, we have yes. many mutual friends and kind of run in the same communities and we're very blessed to exist in a very conscious, kind, safe community. And we've had to build it yeah. that way, right? And there's rupture and yeah. repair and all that stuff. But I also do, um, you know, the mama polar bear in me, that's the protector of yeah. women, as I know you have, you know, your own version Same. of that too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Wants to kind of also add a note of caution. One thing I would suggest is go to women-led things. From my experience, and this is just my yes. perspective, when women lead these groups versus men, the, ver the energy, the intention is very different. <laughs> Correct. I would agree. I would agree with that as well. Mm -hmm. I would agree with that. And even starting with women's circles, like if you've never as a yes. woman, you're exploring this, if you've never been in a women's circle, yes. I would highly recommend going to that because there's a yes. variety of different themes and topics. Could be, 
you know, topless or things like that. I know when I used to run a workshop in person, that was like a combination workshop and and women's circle. And by the end, women would be like topless and naked and we're talking, right? And there isn't a sexualization, but to just be, even again, if you're starting very, very new, that would be a place of even being safe to to talk about it and feel like you can express that freely. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I feel... I feel like I've just totally outed myself on several things in this episode and I love it. I'm so here for it. The level of vulnerability. I don't know if this is a first for you and outing yourself in this way, but maybe you're not. Maybe. I, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm honored that I'm helping create a safe space for you to, uh, to, to all these tell things. Tell it all. Uh, tell it all, honey. And, and I'm, I'm usually pretty open with a lot, like with pretty much everything because I didn't have that. So I like to share as much, you know, as much as I can and as, as truthful and as vulnerably as I can, as I think I've shared with you, my intention this year, my word has been exposed and exposure mm. and the form has been communication. So mm. that's, you know, that's the name of the game that I like, like to play. And I allow others to let it land where it goes. And for me, I like to share and expose as well, being a Middle Eastern woman talking about my attraction to other women, exploring mm. play parties, like all mm. of these radical concepts around sexuality, love and relationship. Again, that's that part that's waving my flag and saying, hey, mm-hmm. like yep. this is okay <laughs> and this is possible and it can be super successful and yummy and playful. You can have it all. Well, speaking of actually the way that you share, you also have a podcast, which we did an episode together on recently, The Pussy Priest. We did. We did. And it was actually all about reclaiming your erotic innocence. So you should check that one out. (laughs) Where else can people find you and more about you and connect with the incredible work that you're doing with sacred intimacy and reclamation of the pussy and sexual healing and self-love and all the amazing things that you're such a master of? Thank you. All the yummy goodness. So I do have a a podcast called The Pussy Priestess Show. Angel was on it. So definitely check out that episode and give her some love on that. I'm also on all social media platforms. So Instagram, I mean, I have a Facebook, but to be quite honest, I'm not really on my Facebook. It's not really the platform that I love. What about you? No? No, not a big not Facebooker. so much. Yeah. 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 But you can find me <laughs> easily on Instagram. Instagram is great. So you can find me. The mm-hmm. podcast page is at Pussy Priestess, or you can find me on my main page now, which is at Josephina Bashout. You can find me on my website, which is josephinabashout.com, which I'm sure will be in the show notes. And yeah, mm-hmm. I'm on all the channels, TikTok as well. Everything is up and going. So you won't have a problem. I am like all over. You can Google me. You can find <laughs> find all my stuff there as well. Is your handle, is it Pussy Priestess, Josephina Bashout? What's the best handle? The handle for the podcast is at Pussy Priestess, but the one for my primary one now is Josephina Bashout. So mm-hmm. I would say to find me on that one as well. And if you're listening mm-hmm. and someone's interested in and going deeper into, again, like yours was like your feet. Mine was, you know, my, <laughs> my breasts and my genitals. But if you're wanting to go deeper into using your own sexual energy to heal yourself, to raise your consciousness, to aliven yourself in life and really, you know, sparkle in that aliveness, then I would also invite people to my website to check out my sex breath masterclass. It's about a 40-minute self-guided masterclass that I guide them through a specific kundalini tantric practice to safely awaken more of their sexual energy get comfortable with it in their in their body and and also start to visualize new ways of being with themselves embodying Mm. their sexual energy 
Mm, sounds so divine my love thank you so much for sharing all the gifts and for your beautiful wisdom and just the joyful playful exploration of sexuality that we went on here today yeah it was such a great such a joy and such a pleasure as always I, i love our chemistry it's always so fun yes yes more soon more soon thank you my love that's it for today awakened one and just a quick Thank you from me. Thank you for gifting us with your most precious resource, your time and attention so that we can make this world a more awakened place. And if we're not friends on Instagram yet, then we absolutely should be. So come on over and say hello at Angelica Alana and I'll see you there and see you next week.